Welcome to the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Haley Barton, and we are in season 20, looking at the topic of transforming worship and particularly focused on Rory Nolan's book, Transforming Worship. So Rory's with me throughout this uh, season and helping to host this conversation. And we're also inviting guests to be with us. And this episode, we have Aaron Damiani, who serves as the rector or the lead pastor of Emmanuel Anglican Church in Chicago. And he is the author of The Good of Giving Up, Discovering the Freedom of Lent, and the one that we'll be leaning into today, Earth Filled with Heaven, Finding Life in Liturgy, Sacraments, and Other Ancient Practices of the Church. Uh, Aaron writes and speaks regularly about spiritual formation, leadership, and recovering the gifts of the ancient church for today's challenges. He lives with his wife, Laura, and their three children in the Irving Park neighborhood of Chicago. So Aaron, it's good to be with you today. We've been on retreat together and had some good conversations together over the years, and you're right here in our neck of the woods. So we welcome you today and very excited about this conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Ruth. I'm delighted to be part of this conversation in this community. Oh, thank you. So in a previous episode, we talked about the practices that um, actually make transforming worship transforming, as opposed to just being rote or heady or intellectual or whatever. And um, the practice of celebrating the Eucharist together or the Lord's Supper, of course, is so central to our faith that we felt that we needed to have a whole episode on the Eucharist. So I'd like to begin this episode by talking about some of our early experiences with the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper in the Transforming Center as we were founding the Transforming Center. And of course, Rory was there with me. And so Rory and I will go back and forth a little bit on what this was like for both of us as we began. But I think the first story I'm going to tell actually precedes Rory's presence with us. And then we've had other stories as well. So, you know, the Transforming Center is an ecumenical group. um, And that's a part of what we're actually quite proud of. And it's very, very intentional for us that we are ecumenical, wanting to be a place where people of many faith traditions can come together and be on a transformational journey together. And um, when we began, the group of us that uh, were founded, uh, were founding the Transforming Center, we had a Catholic with us, as well as some Anglicans, as well as those of us who had been in some of the more contemporary model churches. And very early on one of our first retreats, we wanted to have the Eucharist be a part of what we did together on retreat as a symbol of our unity together. And so we had one of our evangelical brothers actually lead out in the Eucharist service. And, you know, he did what he was accustomed to doing. And I thought it went fine. It went great. I was glad for his willingness. But then after it was over, we recognized that we had actually offended our Anglican brothers and sisters by the fact that it wasn't served by a priest, it wasn't consecrated by a priest. And so a place that I thought was going to be very unifying actually became a very painful place in our life together in community. And it was really hard on the person who had served as community because he felt like he was rather rejected in his role. Um, and, and he felt he was serving, but then found that he had caused pain by not, you know, being an ordained priest serving the, the Eucharist. And then, of course, you know, the Anglicans among us were also hurt and offended as well because it wasn't done in a way that was sensitive to their tradition. That was a painful moment. And then there's one more and then then we'll, you know, we'll talk a little bit 
The other one was when we had one of our early retreats at a Catholic retreat center that was attached to a gorgeous chapel where um, it's a chapel of perpetual adoration. And so that chapel is always open. There's always a priest in there and they celebrate Eucharist once a day and the community is invited to come. So we thought, well, how cool is this? We'll just go over and celebrate the Eucharist with them, you know, as a part of our prayer rhythms, because we pray fixed hour prayers, but we thought let's have one of our fixed hours of prayer uh, be taken with the congregation that gathers in this chapel. And so we went, we were so happy to be a part of it. And we were so happy to be stretching beyond Protestant Christianity and really experiencing what the Catholic tradition, how they value the Eucharist. It was, we were just so excited to be there. And when it came time for the Eucharist, the priest was really clear that only Catholics could come forward. And so the Catholic brother that was part of our leadership group, and I will never forget the moment. It was one of the most painful moments you could ever experience as Christians. So he stood up awkwardly. He looked at all the rest of us who could not go, but he couldn't not go because that would have been wrong, you know, for him in terms of the celebration of his faith. And so we, he went forward. And he received the Eucharist, but the rest of us were not able to. And so it was another place of real pain for us, as it had to do with the founding of the Transforming Center and our desire to be unified across lines of tradition. And so uh, I'll be really, really honest and say that because we had these two painful experiences with the Eucharist so early on, I will just admit that we gave up. I felt really uncertain about how to offer it. Um, in a way that wouldn't be offensive to people. And so I couldn't bear that kind of pain anymore. And so we just sort of set the Eucharist aside and didn't try. We stopped trying to celebrate it. The other thing that's really interesting about my story is that I was raised Plymouth Brethren, which means that we celebrated the Eucharist in its own service every single week. So all the way up into my 30s, I was used to celebrating the Eucharist every single week in its own service. Like the preaching service was another service. We had the Lord's Supper at 930 and it was a good hour. Um, it was unstructured, but it culminated in the you know receiving of the elements. And I was used to celebrating the Eucharist every single week in my upbringing. And now to feel that it was a place that I couldn't, you know, I personally couldn't figure out how to offer it in a way that was unifying versus dividing uh, was a very, very painful place for me. So I think those two incidents, Rory, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, were before you came to us. Am I right? So you were not a part of those two mm -hmm experiences. So you didn't have an understanding when you came as our worship leader very early on, like in after the second community, because you were in Transforming Community too. you didn't really understand why we didn't celebrate the Eucharist routinely. And so there was this place of pain that you and I had to talk about. So let's talk about what your experience was like coming in, not knowing those stories, but experiencing a worshiping community that wasn't using, that wasn't celebrating the Eucharist. <laughs> it felt like a clear miss to me. And mm -hmm. I think part of what was going on with me too is the Lord was doing something in my heart uh, in drawing mm -hmm. me to the Eucharist. And I was starting actually to work on my, my doctoral thesis, which was on the spiritual implications of the Eucharist. And uh, no pun intended, I had this growing hunger, you know, for, for the Word mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. to experience this. And I was also part of churches uh, that did not observe weekly communion. So that ad just mm -hmm. added to my hunger. But I thought of all the, <laughs> of all the communities <laughs> that you think would, would get it and would you, you want to really do, I really want to celebrate communion with this community, would be my transforming 
uh, center community. And so I do remember bringing it up. And when I heard about all the baggage, I'm like, oh, okay, I, I get it. Mm-hmm. But I tried to be as uh, gentle and uh, you know, persistent as possible at the same mm-hmm. time. And I'm glad we entered into a dialogue about it because uh, yeah. we eventually then decided to, you know, to set uh, set aside one one moment uh, in the retreat that we do celebrate uh, the table. And uh, mm-hmm. to me, I I just love uh, our experiences that we that we've had around the, around the table together. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sure. I mean, you know, there's been you know some bumps still along the way. And uh, maybe mm-hmm. maybe you have more to report on that, but mostly what I've experienced on retreats is people are just so grateful for the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was really grateful that you brought it up, Rory, and it and it it did mean though that we had to heal something. And so I've shared this with our communities as we gather that we have a very mixed bag history with the Eucharist, and we understand the pitfalls and. Uh, and all of that, and yet we are choosing to bring it back as even an act of healing for our own community after some of those hard experiences that we've had. And so, yeah, on every retreat now, there's one service that is centered around, you know, coming to the table together. And I think we've just gotten better at telling people that they're free to participate or not in the way that feels good to them. So if we have an Anglican or a Catholic or someone who, for whom it is really important that it is an ordained priest that consecrates, then we invite them to come up and be blessed, which they're happy to do. And what I've discovered, too, is that eventually their own hunger to celebrate you know, communion with this community eventually transcends whatever it is that their tradition taught them about it. And I think... The thing that, and I do want us to talk about this, and and Erin, that's why I've invited you into this episode, is that from my perspective, having been taught scripture the way I was taught scripture as a young child, that, you know, the communion was served in homes and it wasn't high church. It was very, it was whoever was in the home having the meal. It was given in a very low church situation. It was literally a meal. And then when the New Testament church gathered, they did it in homes And then when I was growing up, it was a spontaneous, what I mean by spontaneous is that it was a completely Holy Spirit directed service. So there wasn't a lot of formality around it, probably not enough formality, maybe, I'm not sure. But I was shaped by something so different that I've even struggled to understand from a biblical theological point of view why it has to be consecrated and served by a priest, because it's not what I see in the New Testament. It's not what I experienced as a child growing up in a pastor's home where the Lord's Supper was highly valued. It was elevated to being its own service, but it was casual in terms of, casual is not even the right word. We were not casual about it, but it was less formal than the high church experience. And so, oh, I just think the question of how do we make sure that we incorporate the Eucharist and the Lord's Supper into our experiences with other Christians in ways that is, you know, transformative rather than obligatory or rote. And then also in a way that's, that's unifying and not dividing, because I think that was the thing that shocked me so early in the transforming community experience is that what I thought was going to be an expression of our unity across lines that usually divide us actually divided us in a deeply painful way. So how's that for an introduction of the topic of the Eucharist? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, sad to say it, but it's not surprising. It's not surprising because for whatever reason, the communion table is filled with a lot of grief and a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. 
And unfortunately, there's just been a lot of division and drama around a meal that's supposed to unite us. Mm-hmm. You know, I, as I listen to your story, I'm, I'm hearing that grief. I'm hearing that longing. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a little bit of the Last Supper where mm-hmm. there was some painful division right within the ranks of, mm-hmm. of Jesus's own spiritual family. Intrigue, betrayal, sadness. Fighting. fighting. Like there was, yeah. the, the, they had just been fighting <laughs> yes. about their roles in the kingdom to come, you know? Yes. <laughs> and then there's, and there's a, you know, an uproar over who gets to wash whose feet. Mm-hmm. So, and then, you know, St. Paul, you know, the great spiritual leader, St. Paul is, is aghast at all of the drama around, you know, the socioeconomic drama between the rich and the poor, the elite and the non-elite. Mm-hmm. I also, uh, boy, one of my favorite stories about this is just Count Zinzendorf, who really wanted to bring people around the table, but they were dividing over doctrine and they were dividing over hurt feelings, which makes me feel better. <laughs> but he had to go door to door and and plead with people to get back to the basics of loving God and loving neighbor, door to door and person to person. What I love about that is he did get them at the table and this this pastoral work, this leadership work, which I'm hearing you did a lot of this and you're doing a lot of this mm-hmm. to get people to the table. What that resulted in was an incredible, you know, they call it the Moravian Pentecost. Oh, yeah. I think the Plymouth Brethren actually emerged from the Moravians. No kidding. I think so. That's amazing. Um, now, we might have listeners who call and say you don't have your history right, but I'm almost certain that there's a connection between the Moravians and the Plymouth Brethren. And, you know, the mission that came out of their hundred years of prayer, which came out of that communion service, you know, yes, the Lord does so much around the communion table to fill us with Mm -hmm. his life, to make us a body when we weren't one before, Mm -hmm. even to change the way we treat one another economically, the way we host one another. So I'm not surprised, but I am sad to hear about the early division, the early drama, Mm -hmm. the, the pain and, and even the surprise, um, it makes me curious, Ruth, about how did you as a leader battle for that contested piece of real estate, the communion table? How did you get people back to the table after yeah. the initial shock and, and division? Well, I like I, I'm, I'm freely admitting in this podcast that, that I gave up for a bit mm-hmm. because I didn't know what to do. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think it's important for me to be honest about that, mm-hmm. that I because those experiences were so painful and I didn't have I didn't have any ideas about what to do. I just, you know, took the easy route and gave up. And I think, you know, Rory coming in as our worship leader and what God was doing in his life, uh, God used his voice, his desire for us to look at this again. So I really appreciated that. But then after we got clear that we were going to do this, one thing I felt was really important was to share our story. I thought that the story was important for our communities to know that we've been on a journey with with communion and that we are intentionally bringing it back as a healing act to say we're going to heal whatever that was and bring it back. And, I, and, you know, I had probably, I felt stronger within myself to be able to offer that at that time than I did when we were beginning this this thing. I mean, the people that were with us in that service were 20 years older than I was, and they were the ones that were hurt by the fact that we had served it in a way that wasn't consistent with their tradition. But then I think the other thing was, I, I want to say a kind of graciousness to begin offering it in a way that people could or could not 
I wasn't forcing anything. It was an invitation to the table, but I wasn't forcing them. You have to do this to be a part of us and to also give them options for ways to come forward that were comfortable for them within their tradition and to really honor their traditions. That felt really important to me. Just like I want, I want to be honored in terms of what God's doing in my life and what I feel strongly about. I want other people to feel that in our communities as well. So not to force it, but to give options. So the option to come to express unity with the community, but to say, I just can't do that right now yet. I, and it came from a place of deep honoring within me of wanting to honor people where they are and not expect them to be exactly where I am just because I'm there, you know, that, so that's a part of what I perceived in my own presence. What about you, Rory? Well, a couple of things I remember. Um, I do remember because I was lobbying for, for the table going mm-hmm. around and it was such a controversial topic in the past I remember going around and asking people, just kind of asking questions about, uh, you know, what do you expect or what, what do you want to see in a, in a table service? And, uh, you know, what is what is a must? And, uh, you know, what what is a You know, we got to include this. And I was actually surprised that no one said that I need to have an ordained priest uh, administer the sacraments. The only thing that I heard consistently was it, we got to have the words of institution. So we did make it a point every time to had to include the words of institution at some point. But I think actually Ruth went a little bit further in that. And I think this, this is really brilliant. Mm-hmm. We had an Anglican priest uh, in one, one community and she asked him to actually lead the service or, you know, lead, lead the, the liturgy. We planned it and everything mm-hmm. and he led it. And uh, I think there was another, another community that we had somebody lead it as well. But that, for those who, who that was important to, you know, we had somebody there. But it also felt like it was somebody, it was kind of organic. It kind of grew out of who we were. Oh, we happen to have an Anglican priest with us. Let's let him, you know, lead our service. And I think we had somebody else lead it. And they were, again, from our, from our community. Mm-hmm. So there was this kind of organic, this is an expression of us in We've got the words of institution in there as well. So uh, as far as I knew, what I could tell, people were, were very pleased. And I didn't pick up any, def- any divisiveness. I mean, yeah. I don't know, Ruth, if you fielded more of that than I did. No, I think the sharing of the story is extremely disarming. Yeah. And the story helps people to say, am I going to, this is where I'm going to drive a stake in the ground? Am I going to be that person that's not able to enter into a unifying experience because my beliefs are more important than, or my tradition is more important than the reality that I'm being invited into? And we invite people biblically. I think that's the other thing is that I am always teaching and inviting people on the basis of a biblical invitation. And so you can still disagree with my interpretation of scripture, but you can't, you can't say that I'm not using scripture, that I'm not honoring scripture, that I'm not inviting you on the basis of scripture. Mm -hmm. And I will always stand there. I will always do what I do standing in the scriptures, you know? And so of course we have all, we have disagreements about our interpretations, but you can never accuse me of not working with the scriptures and offering a biblical invitation, which for many Christians will be enough. I hope, you know, that, that at least it were, were attempting. Do you have any thoughts, Aaron, as an Anglican priest into the experiences that we've had? Would you want to interpret it a little bit or? Yeah, I I kind of want to apologize on behalf of my fellow (laughs) Anglicans. We can be a a very particular bunch. (laughs) Um, You know, what's interesting is that 
as an Anglican, you know, one of one of the gifts I think of of the Anglican tradition is just the sense of mere Christianity, yeah. and that there's a sense in which we're inviting all Christians who are following Christ in faith and repentance to take communion. If you're at an Anglican service, but we mm-hmm. also do have within our tent a pretty broad spectrum of people who are yes, you know, uh, we've got we've got the Anglo Catholics, very high church. We've got you know, the Sydney Anglicans, very Zwinglian view of, of the Lord's Supper. And you've got people like me who are more you know, close to Calvin on things and the real presence. Mm-hmm. And I do think the real presence is, is important. There's a place, I do believe, for some, what we call, you know, just good ecclesiology, that some people, they have a sense that in order to have theological integrity, there is going to need to be some boundaries around where communion is served and how it's served. Mm -hmm. I think there's a way to do that. That's loving. That is also um, heeding Christ's prayer in John 17, that we would be united, that we would be one and seeking that whenever possible. Mm -hmm. So I want to honor people's integrity and also getting back to the main point of loving God, loving others um, in a Christ-centered, spirit-filled way. There's got to be a way to do that well, you know, operating with integrity within our churches, but also operating with integrity beyond our churches mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Aaron, let me ask you this. When when we think about the New Testament church mm-hmm. and the fact that communion was celebrated in homes yes. around meals, what does that what does that say to us biblically and theologically? What does it say to you as an Anglican priest mm-hmm. biblically and theologically? Well, I do think that there is, there's definitely some disagreement as to how much of that is normative now, the mm-hmm. celebrating communion in homes. Where I immediately go to are the implications of the Eucharist, the implications of the mm-hmm. Lord's Supper, which is it means that we are extending the table of the Lord in our own homes, that we're living Eucharistically. And so even mm-hmm. while we, we may gather uh, throughout the week on a Sunday, or we may do communion, uh, as, as many do, gathering during the week, we are living Eucharistically in the sense that we're feasting with the stranger. We're feasting with the mm-hmm. poor and we're doing so because Christ has given his life for us. And so we're, we're learning to live in such a way that um, the Lord's Supper is the shape of our life, the shape of our, our, our rhythms. I, I do think that uh, we need to account for the fact that this was, uh, this meal was uh, something that was, it was not restricted, and maybe in the same ways that it's being restricted now. Uh, but nevertheless, I think the early church did find pretty quickly some ways to bring good order to the love connection, the, you know, the love feast that the early Christians were having. So I think we see that in Corinth. They were right in the middle of that, where they were celebrating the Lord's Supper in homes. They were celebrating it uh, with meals, uh, and that was creating some issues, and those issues were giving opportunity not only for sound Eucharistic theology, but also loving practices of rich and poor together sitting at the table of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. While you were talking, I was thinking about the story that's told about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I think it's Dietrich Bonhoeffer, where they're in the concentration camp and they don't have elements at all, Mm -hmm. but they are a community that want to celebrate communion together. Do you remember this story? It's so powerful. Mm -hmm. So they you know, they, they lifted, you know, imaginary elements to their mouths because they didn't have anything that they could even use. 
and that that is such a striking story of just transcending any sort of physical place mm. to allowing the Eucharist and the communion to strengthen us in in ways that we just need to be strengthened through it. So thank you for that, though. I really appreciate um, your willingness to just engage the question with me because I know it can feel, this question can feel a little threatening. And, mm. you know, I appreciate that we're able to just be very open with each other about the difficulties. Yes. That feels healing in and of itself, mm. that we can even have this conversation. Yes. And talk about these differences and how we might, you know, kind of bring it all back together. May your kingdom come in I knew the stresses had a chance to really derail me from my own spiritual life, but it was because of this community that I actually, I think I was able to stay on track with my spiritual life with the practices. So I would say it was animal, just And I felt that very profoundly. And I felt this space is a space where my soul, who I really am, my true self, can come out and can be safe and can be received and can be nourished. So what's blown and my mind is that like the greatest way I can show up before God is as a human, and I feel like I've always tried to be like an angel disguised as a human, <laughs> you know, like the whole idea of desires was selfish and not Christian. And what I'm seeing now is that like, that's how I show up as my most authentic self. And it's how I relate to other humans. It's how I actually show God's greatness and glory to other people. Like being able And I guess when we are closing now, um, I'm thinking about, of course, the rule of life, what I'm gonna do with this with this deep desire and how to arrange your life to keep the journey. Uh, We'd like to take a break for a moment from our conversation and invite you to consider Transforming Community 20, which is now on the books beginning in April. And if you've been sitting here listening to this conversation about transforming worship and thinking, wow, I would really like to experience some of what they're talking about, TC20 is for you. We really do experience these things regularly and routinely on our retreats and in our Transforming Community context. And we would love to have you. So if you're interested in Transforming Community 20, go to transformingcenter.org to learn more and apply. When you apply, you can use Podcast 20 as a code to take $50 off your application fee. So again, if you're interested in Transforming Community 20, you can go to transformingcenter.org to learn more and apply. And now, back to our conversation. I want to turn the corner a little bit now and talk about the role of the Eucharist in a transforming in transforming worship. And Rory, I'd like to kick it to you first and just say, talk to us about how you see the Eucharist as being part of transforming worship and how you experience that. What is transformative? If, if that's the journey we're really on, how does participating in the Eucharist transform us and change us within a worship environment? Well, the beauty of the table is that the theology is so rich. Um, there is so much you could mine there. And uh, mm -hmm. historically, the churches had this, what I call one-two punch, word and table is kind of the basic for a, a kind of the basic structure for a service. And uh, they really work hand in glove together. And uh, table is a response often to uh, the sermon. And uh, just, you know, for example, one, one way that it's formative is sermons, this is just kind of generally speaking, sermons have a tendency to uh, be very informational. And, uh, you know, you're taking notes and you're learning something. And, uh, you know, the pastor's, you know, giving you three points and everything. 
the table allows you to take what you know up here and to actually experience it. It is a visceral, mm -hmm. physical embodiment of what you know. And that's why it, it's, it's important. It goes deep because it's, it's not just a head thing. It's a full body thing. You know, you get up, you, you walk up front, you receive it in your hands, you can smell it, you taste it, you can feel it go down. Mm -hmm. You're taking it in you. And so that in itself, I mean, that's what we should be doing with, with Jesus all the time, taking him deep into us. And uh, so mm -hmm. I, I know I'm big on um, weekly observance of communion. I grew up mm -hmm. not having that. Now that I do, I, I, mm -hmm. I just love it. But uh, I, I fantasize about writing a book someday about, you know, 52 reasons why you should be doing, you know, your church should be doing communion every week. Because mm -hmm. the the theology of it, the the spirituality of it. I mean, every time we do the communion, uh, we're presenting the gospel, and it's like mm -hmm. that's the gospel story right there. Mm -hmm. And so that in itself is formative. But yeah, I I really would lobby for you know, churches to consider. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, whenever I I push on this button. I, I hear pastors often say, well, we don't do it weekly because we don't want it to get old. Mm. And so we do, we do it quarterly, we do it monthly. And I, you know, very lovingly, kindly kind of just replies like, you know, we don't say that about any other element of the service. <laughs> like, right. we don't say, right. you know, we don't want the sermon to get old. So let's not do it so much. You know, let's do it like a, once a quarter. We don't apply that logic to anything else. I don't understand why we apply it to the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. We certainly don't apply it to family dinner. We don't apply yeah. it to eating breakfast. <laughs> That's right. Well, in the Transforming Center, we, we, we talk about the Eucharist as a multifaceted diamond because there are so many facets to it. And so whenever we do the communion, we do it once every retreat. We always do it uniquely for that retreat relative to that theme. And one of the themes that is kind of earthy is that around the word communion, the fact that communication is usually verbal, but communion is always beyond words. And mm -hmm. it is about taking God, you know, taking Jesus into ourselves, you know, and there's an inner penetration there that is earthy, but profound and very real. As you said, Rory, that we take, we actually take it into our bodies versus just um, being in our heads with it. So, um, I think that's one of the ways it doesn't get old too, is that if we can keep turning the diamond and looking at the facets, then there is, there can be a freshness to it as well. What about you, Aaron? How do you experience and see the Eucharist as being a transforming element of a worship service? Well, you know, one of the things that, that I see over and over again, really are those people who are coming in with kind of burned out heads and burned out hearts mm -hmm. and, and sometimes burned out uh, hands. They've been ministering so uh, passionately that they have nothing left. And that's where I was at when I first started experiencing more frequent communion mm -hmm. was I was in a place of doubting my faith, trying to think things through really in my head, was also burned out emotionally, you know, was at a mega church and, mm -hmm. uh, and was in my first ministry assignment. And just the sense of having to bring a lot to make worship happen mm -hmm. and make it meaningful. That was all resting on me, resting on right thoughts, right feelings, doing enough. And so there was a sense of 
the Eucharist being an easy yoke, the sacraments being an objective gift from God, that he, he loves us as his children. He's given us everything in Jesus Christ. And those promises are just refreshed week by week. And I can chew and I can stand and kneel and, and experience the, just the rest and the refreshment of that. And what I found was that, and what I see in my pastoral work now is just the healing of head and heart. So the bringing back together of head and heart as you participate in the body. And not just that, not, it's not just a, a personal experience, but also there is a great sense uh, that the Eucharist is changing what we love, changing you know the habits of it, doing it week by week actually changes what we value and shapes our imagination. Mm -hmm. Our world is so incredibly materialistic in the sense, not in the sense that we like to buy a lot of things, although that's true sometimes, but we just see, we see creation cut off from the mystery and the the purposes of God. And the Eucharist is, I find that heals that for people and they can begin to see creation more as a God-infused, Jesus Christ-purposed gifts that we can not only participate in, but also steward. So moving out from Sunday, we're, we're, we're walking out with a sacramentally informed imagination so that we're looking at even our enemies differently. We're looking at our work differently. We're not just using and discarding what seems beautiful and expedient, mm -hmm. but we actually are walking out with a greater sense of reverence, joy. And I think the bleakness of modern life can, can be replaced by a, a more sacramental imagination, we might call it. Yeah. I think that, too, for Protestants and some ilks of Protestantism, that we don't have a good sacramental theology. You know, we don't yes. have any way of experiencing the mystery of the faith. And so oftentimes we can be actually quite careless. Um, like I've seen, well, we've all, I don't know, I remember one time at a large church that I was at where we were celebrating communion and it was really like fast food communion where the ushers at the back had it and you could take it out the door with you. Like, <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> I'm like, we are really lacking a sacramental approach to our faith. So, if we've got the ushers <laughs> holding the, the plastic yeah, cups like, and bread I, on the way out, look, you, we'll serve this to you on yeah. the way out because we don't want to inconvenience yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's like the grab and go communion. It was grab a grab and go, and go situation. And I, I've yeah. never seen anything. I'm, I, I couldn't do it oh. that way. I just, I just felt like that I just couldn't do it that way. So I, I would love to see the Eucharist also be a way in which we get back in touch with some of the more sacramental elements of our faith, the mystery of our faith, you know. And, you know, Aaron, in your book, you do talk about the disagreements of whether or not it's really Christ. You know, is it really right. the body and blood and or is it just a remembrance feast? I, can you say a little bit more? How do you help people in that space, like even in your role as a rector of an Anglican church, which would have a very high sacramental view of what's happening um, in the Lord's Supper, how do you help people with that issue in their lives? Well, you know, I just in some ways start with like, let's be as let's start with the simple basics is that Christ is present. Mm -hmm. And so if we focus too much on what's happening to the bread and the wine, you know, Peter Lightheart talks about like the Zoom angle lens where you're 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 kind of going all the way up the camera angles going all the way up to like a microscope and one of the things i tell people is like microscopes don't reveal jesus they're not going to show you jesus mm -hmm. and the bread and the wine they'll show you the wonders of creation 
but but the word of God reveals Jesus Christ. And so we can we can look to the word of God and see that Christ does want to meet us in his body and in his blood. And he wants to remind us of the basics of his promises of forgiveness and the union that we have with him. But then as it relates to, you know, what does that mean for the bread and the wine? What I'll just, you know, give them is this is part of God's creation. He's setting it apart to love you mm-hmm. and meet with you. And that's that's a gracious thing for him to do. He he traffics in the basics of creation, water, bread, and wine, because that's where we live and that's who we are. We're creatures of creation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe also just pointing them to the incarnation of Jesus, that he he just showed us that matter matters when he became man and he he lived a human life and um, he gave real blood in his sacrifice. And so we don't have to obsess over the metaphysics of the physical parts of, of communion. We can simply let these physical aspects bring us closer to Jesus and know that his presence with us through the Holy Spirit is actually closer than the juice mm-hmm. or the wine, it's closer than that bread. Um, it's he's around us, in us, between us. And and so um, I, I really do want to call people out of the some of the maybe metaphysical debates from the Reformation. And before that, you know, Aristotle and, and some of the categories mm-hmm. that were created. Well, and I would assume then that you're not, you don't have to see somebody agree with you theolo- theologically on whether it's transubstantiation or not. Yeah, you don't require people to believe one way or the other to approach and to experience it. Am I right on that? You wouldn't that's require correct. that. Yeah, that's, okay. Yeah. yeah. That's very pastoral. Every Sunday I tell people like, you might be here from a different church tradition, mm-hmm. different background on communion. Please come forward and take this invitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're not comfortable with it, the Lord is also here for you mm-hmm. as well. Like you were mentioning in the, the Dietrich Bonhoeffer yeah. story, his his promises to you are there. Mm-hmm. And so you might even let people pray for, like pray the prayers and sing the songs mm-hmm. for you mm-hmm. and just know that his grace. So I don't require that they, but I do require actually that you need to be in Jesus. You need to yeah. be walking mm-hmm. in faith and repentance mm-hmm. and yeah. to have been baptized already. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just my expression of pastoral theological yeah, integrity. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I really like the way John Calvin puts it, you know, because he lived at that time when they were trying to figure it out. And he said, I don't know how it happens. I just know Jesus is there. Jesus is real. Mm-hmm. Jesus is really present. He said, I, I can't mm-hmm. explain it. I just know he is. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, Jesus really is present at the table. Mm-hmm. So, Rory, what about you? How, do you, how would you encourage church leaders or any community that's wanting to be a worshiping community to incorporate the Eucharist in transformative ways rather than ways that are obligatory and rote? Because I think all of us have probably experienced obligatory and rote expressions as well, and that's discouraging when it happens. What are the thoughts that you offer that have to do with incorporating this great practice in transforming ways into worship? One suggestion I would make is if there's an openness to maybe observing the table in different ways. Uh, and the, what, what I say, the reason I say that is because most of us grew up, um, so I know I did, celebrating the uh, communion one way, one, one mood, one tone. It was always somber, and we were always supposed to think about and just remember Jesus. And that's pretty much about it. And uh, so it's kind of a downer. 
And yet, when you look historically at the, the different words that are used to describe the table, there's kind of a different nuance to each one. And this is based on uh, you know, Bob Weber's book, uh, his work on this, as well as uh, Constance Cherry. And uh, I'll just go through these just really quickly. There's like four different words that we're are using here. One is the Lord's Supper. This kind of table observance, you know, it kind of focuses on the suffering and the death of Christ. So, yeah, it might be somber and reflective, more serious in tone. It may also include a time of confession. In some places, it's called a Eucharist which mm-hmm. means to give thanks. And this is actually the most common term that the early Christians used to refer to the communion meal. And um, so it turns the spotlight on the resurrection because the early Christians, that's what they were really jazzed about. They experienced the resurrection. And so it celebrates Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. And there's gratitude for Christ's victory over sin, death, and evil. So the tone is typically upbeat or joyous. Uh, Another way to look at it is a a communion meal, a family meal that celebrates our fellowship with God and with one another, made possible through the sacrifice of Christ. And so that might accentuate the communal nature of of the table. And then maybe lastly, another possibility is heavenly feasts. It's, the table has also been referred to mm-hmm. as uh, kind of a preview of the, the, the heavenly. Yes. And kind of based on Jesus, you know, do this, uh, or I will, you know, do the, or proclaim this, this until I, my death until I come. And so that one might be, you know, celebratory as well and uh, with joyful mm-hmm. anticipation. So, you know, I delve more into that, more detail in my book, but that's kind of, just kind of, would would that help it uh, in your setting? Uh, Another idea would be to make a link, a short link between the sermon and the table. And a lot of times, you know, if we take something from the sermon, we can take it right to Jesus. And, you know, it's especially if the sermon has been like, very uh, instructional, do this, do that. Well, I can only do that by grace, by the grace of God. So I, I return to the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what a rich conversation this has been. And my prayer, as I prayed before we even started, is that this episode in particular would give us a vision for two things. One is for how celebrating the Eucharist can be a transforming element of our worship, but also how we can, in precise moments like what I shared about our own early experiences, we can experience the Eucharist as a unifying moment and not as a divisive moment and work really hard for that. You know, we've worked really hard for that in the Transforming Center. Rory and I, we went to some deep places to discuss this and find a way to heal our earlier experiences and come back to a place of incorporating this. And so work hard for it, you know, don't give on, don't give up on this too easily because it's just way too important to our faith Mm -hmm. and to our ongoing transformation. Aaron, thank you so much. Earth Filled with Heaven. It's a wonderful book, Finding Life in Liturgy, Sacraments, and Other Ancient Practices of the Church. And then Rory has his ideas too about the Eucharist, a whole chapter on the Eucharist in his book, Transforming Worship. So grateful to be with the two of you today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Mm-hmm. Yeah.